to Podiatry Today Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Managing Editor for Podiatry Today. In this episode, we are excited to welcome back Dr. J.P. McAleer and Dr. William Duke to continue their discussion on metatarsus adductus. Dr. McAleer is a shareholder partner with the Jefferson City Medical Group in Jefferson City, Missouri. He is on staff at SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City, Missouri, and serves as the Vice Chief of Staff at the Jefferson City Medical Group Surgical Center. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and is a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Dr. William Duke is also a shareholder partner with the Jefferson City Medical Group and is also on staff at the SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City, Missouri. He, too, is a diplomat of the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Dr. McAleer discloses that he is a medical device and educational consultant for Treese Medical Concepts Incorporated and bears royalties for intellectual property interests. Dr. Duke discloses that he's an educational consultant for Treese Medical Concepts Incorporated as well. We'd like to thank Treese Medical Incorporated for their support of this episode. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for further information and a message from them. Welcome back, Dr. McAleer and Dr. Duke. You shared a lot of great information in our first episode about metatarsus adductus. To start us back off today, are there any surgical techniques or tips that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, I will tell you, uh, if you are doing this particular technique for the first time and you don't feel 100% comfortable with the approach, I would try to avoid opening both the medial and lateral incisions together at the same time. This way you can address the lessors, do your fixation, close, place compression, and then drop your tourniquet. And then this way, it'll extend the amount of time that you can kind of work, and then you won't have to deal with any uh, intra-op oozing or bleeding and so on. So that that's kind of tip breaking it up into two separate mini procedures, I guess, instead of one larger procedure. Maybe, well, let's just open everything up, get everything mobilized, and get it back into position. And if you feel very comfortable with the anatomy and the approach, it, that's a, a very reasonable and easy way to do it. Again, if you're you're just kind of getting out there and saying, well, I'm going to do one of these for the first time, and this is not a space that I usually live in, you know, you may want to try uh, kind of doing it more of a stepwise approach and breaking it up a little bit during the, the procedure. Yeah, I would agree. I think the next pearl that maybe I'll give is that if this is a patient coming back to you for a recurrent talus valgus after previous surgery and you look at their x-ray and there's already some osteoarthritic changes occurring at that first MTPJ, but they have concomitant metatarsus adductus. The pearl may be that the right procedure for this patient is a first MTPJ fusion and not necessarily going back and trying to start all over reinventing the wheel and taking care of the metaductus and the first ray as well, because Maybe they don't have that large callus under two. Maybe it's just big toe joint pain and the appearance clinically of a new bunion, so to speak. So the pearl for me may be just that. Look at it, like we talked about in the beginning, look at the whole con- concept again, look at the whole patient, what they've gone through, because they may be somebody that needs a big toe joint fusion and not addressing one, two, and three at this point. And maybe that's a totally different podcast. I don't know but that would be my pearl to it. I can't agree more with you on that one. So if, if you have a patient that has some evidence of osteoarthritis, their great toe joint, um, and they have metaductus, 
I'm very quick to pull the trigger on a great toe joint fusion because uh, the way that we perform these, we use a, a biplanar technique for the plating at the big toe. These patients walk the day of surgery in a cast boot for six weeks. Then we transition them out of that boot into a tennis shoe at week six with low impact activity until about week 14 to 16. And the one thing I would add to this is if you have a patient that uh, because of that lateralization, that windswept deformity, a lesser digit, the digits become so subluxed over time where it almost appears like a rheumatoid foot, where the patient is starting to develop dislocations and maybe some evidence of AVN or, or other just really severe arthritic changes of the lessors. I am very comfortable doing like a modified Hoffman-Clayton where you're going to fuse the big toe and then do a, a pan-med head resection. These patients do phenomenally well, very comfortable afterwards, fit their shoes well, and they tend to be very functional. And especially if you have someone that's not extremely active, you know, someone who's maybe in their, their 70s and, you know, their, their health could be uh, somewhat in question at, at times because you get a very, very active 70-year-old also. I mean, we have some patients that are uh, stellar athletes still at 70 years old. So uh, you kind of have to know your, your audience essentially when you're approaching some of these. But, but that is a very, very powerful option to get all the digits back into position and to relieve some of that lesser metatarsal pressure and pain, especially if the patient is getting, like, like Duke said, uh, callus buildup and, and capsulitis and discomfort and dislocations and so on. You've touched on this a, a little bit already. But is there anything else that you can tell us about the role of metatarsus adductus in first-ray pathology? Interestingly enough, there's a lot of buzz now around attacking all three planes when you're dealing with the hallux valgus deformity. That's something we wholeheartedly believe in, and that's our approach currently for hallux valgus. But interestingly enough, when you have a patient that's metatarsus adductus, there is very, very little frontal plane rotation of the first metatarsal with these deformities. And they're unique onto themselves. So patients that have these severe bunion deformities where if you kind of use Kilmartin's method to, to uncover the true IM, or if you do more of a subtractive method uh, with the Serlato method, where you kind of subtract the metatarsus adductus angle and, and the intermetatarsal angle, you kind of calculate where the real IM is. Uh, these patients have monster intermetatarsal angles. I mean, you're, you're looking at patients with, you know, 20, 24, 25, and, and sometimes beyond that. And their hallux valgus angle, in some cases, is 30, 40 plus. I mean, so these are just unbelievable angles. So it's interesting because they still have sesamoid subluxation. Uh, they have this deep concavity of the medial arch on the foot, if you kind of look at it in the transverse plane. And they just look like they hurt when the patients walk in. You, you look at them. I, I can look at someone now clinically and go, oh, this patient is metatarsus adductus immediately when they, they come into the office. I think the, the process here is reduce the lessers when appropriate and then reduce the first. But just keep in mind that the first metatarsal, if you are attempting a triplane correction, you don't really need that frontal plane component to a large degree. It's a really transverse plane. Uh, ultimately, and this is more of a congenital deformity, uh, whether it's genetic or interuterine crowding or so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many theories on why it occurs, but that's what you're really seeing. And so the approach is similar, but different. But the the the, the tenants and uh, surgery and the philosophy are the same uh, in the way that we want to get these guys corrected and these gals corrected. Agree, a hundred percent. There's a lot of tenants as to why it occurs. One in two per thousand predilection to males, 
whatever that may be, right? But at the end of the day, our patient doesn't care about how much it occurs in everybody else. They care about how it affects them and what we need to do. And the super high IMs, I'll, I'll challenge you, and I'm, I'm sure Jody does this too. You fix two and three in the OR, and then you look at their real IM, like their, their true radiographic IM, and once you see it, you're like, whoa, that, that's, out, that's out there. Like, I really need to get this back. And that's true. There's very little frontal plane rotation to it. And when you put two and three back and you look at the foot, you really kind of feel sorry for somebody who was walking from a foot like this because you're like, you know, they really, they really needed this. This is going to help them quite a bit. It plays a tremendous role in first-rate pathology. We've, we've seen all kinds of things, not just arthritis, but, you know, shoe width problems. And Jody's right. It, it decreases your shoe width by tremendous amounts. And the, the foot, not only does it look better, it, it feels better. And people come back in and they're like, hey, I haven't worn these shoes in years and they fit again. And I'm, you know, I'm still a little swollen. Look at this. So it's very satisfying and gratifying for everybody involved. The um, other thing we should probably touch on is just post-operative protocol with these patients. I think that, you know, these patients are going to be a little bit different than maybe just a typical Bunyan patient because they're having, uh, you know, multiple joints adjusted, realigned, and then there's an arthrodesis carried out at, you know, multiple levels. So we usually put these patients in a post-operative splint. So, uh, you know, a uh, posterior splint with a sugar tongue modification, keep them in that for about five days. And then we transition them to a cast boot so that they can start doing range of motion exercises. So we have them do digital range of motion exercises, either by them uh, physically manipulating the digits or, you know, actively uh, doing that manipulation. And then we also have them work on ankle range of motion and knee range of motion afterwards, just kind of engage all the pumping mechanisms of the uh, muscles in the lower leg also to help with some swelling. And then we have the patients remain typically non-weight-bearing on the affected lower extremity for about four to six weeks. And then we transition them to a a partial protected weight-bearing status in that cast boot for an additional six weeks. So around the 12-week mark is when we transition these patients back to their shoes. And then we start allowing them to go back to um, uh, impact activities by uh, four months uh, post-op. And and this is a subset of the population also that we typically give patients either a 3D custom or our carbon fiber prefab or um, or custom orthotic uh, to just to give them some additional support for a period of time. And because of the approach, because of the multiple incisions, because of the multiple joint fusions, you're going to see some more swelling in these patients than you would with uh, just a, a straightforward, typical bunion surgery, just because of the additional surgical uh, method that occurs here. So we always counsel the patients to that. Uh, you know, they could have uh, some more paresthesias uh, just due to some swelling. So we try to uh, use compression socks and encourage range of motion, uh, exercises, and so on in the post-op period uh, in order to help with that swelling. And it does subside, but it, it, it can take a little bit longer than, than a patient having a bunion in isolation. So just something to kind of give some consideration to and counsel the patients on. I think one thing I would add to that is sometimes I feel like I'm a, a worker at a supplement store because I'm like, hey, listen, we need to make sure your protein's good, talk to them about their nutrition, what your, you know, your calcium, your vitamin D, your magnesium, your zinc, anything we can get for you for bone and soft tissue healing, because I don't know about everybody who's listening, but we have a lot of vitamin D deficient patients that are not, you know, they're at the low level of normal or below, and we're trying to get them up 
to that 50, 60 range at least. And they need some additional supplementation. You know, we're definitely this time of year, we're not outside getting sunlight as I prepare for a massive incoming snowstorm. But, you know, I, I think that has to be, it has to be addressed as well. And when you do, patients are usually very thankful because you might be the first one who's talked to them about it. So it goes a little bit past the surgical realm. It's not as cool as cutting and turning and shifting a bone and putting some plates and screws in, but it's probably just as important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. We talk to patients routinely on nutritional optimization, uh, both pre-op and post-op. We are typically drawing uh, vitamin D panels on these patients ahead of time. And I can't tell you, like, like Bill said, I can't tell you how many of these patients we find that are deficient. And, uh, you know, you have patients coming in and their vitamin D level is like a 12. And you're like, whoa, okay, well, we, got, we, we have to do something about this. So uh, the great majority of our patients are going to be taking uh, vitamin D3, minimum of 2,000 IUs uh, after a surgery daily. Uh, some of these patients are taking more than that. If they're just severely deficient, uh, some of them we're getting together with the primary care doctor for long-term management. Um, so this way they don't kind of get lost uh, after we finish with them. Uh, but yeah, vitamin C usually, uh, you know, uh, about a thousand of vitamin C daily, uh, increased protein, you know, 20, 30 extra grams of protein, as long as, you know, they don't have any kidney dysfunction or problems that we're going to overwhelm their kidneys, but uh, just good, good food sources, good nutrition, um, making sure that the patients are optimizing their bodies in order to uh, prepare for essentially what, what, what is a trauma, you know, we're, we're creating a trauma. So we want the patients to have all the essential building blocks that they need in order to heal appropriately. If we have a smoker, we'll typically flat out tell the patient that, you know, we will not operate on you for these particular procedures if you're a tobacco user, uh, because we're concerned about soft tissue healing, bone healing. Uh, so we don't just turn the patients away, though. We work with them on smoking cessation. We get them together for counseling with their primary care doctor. We also uh, draw nicotine levels and metabolite levels on these patients uh, to ensure that they're actually following the program and that they are they're doing the, the right thing essentially to, to to kind of again optimize their potential for healing. So it's a, it's like it's an all encompassing philosophy and process that we use when we're approaching not just not just for metaductus but halixagus, you know any patient. I mean any any patient that's coming in for a an elective procedure that they can schedule at their leisure. You know if this is an ankle fracture, you know it's a little bit more pressing, or if it's you know something else that that needs to be done right away. We we can't always have the luxury of having these conversations ahead of time, getting things kind of mapped out the way we want them. But but definitely, definitely, definitely very very important. I agree. You've covered a lot of information today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, or any final thoughts that you'd like to share? One thing that I would just add, and this may be a, a strange area to kind of add this into as a, you know, as a, a final thought, but one of the things that we get asked often about when you're correcting for metatarsis inductus, docs will also ask, do I have to do something for the toes? Do I have to do an osteotomy uh, of some fashion, whether it be an arthroplasty or an arthrodesis, so the, the lesser digits, do I have to do uh, metatarsal phalangeal joint releases? And typically what we're seeing is that these patients will have uh, some spontaneous reduction of the digital deformities because you're shortening through the second and third rays, which provides slack back to the extensor and flexor tendons, and it also helps to relieve some of the tension and stress on the capsular tissues. So the digital deformities typically will correct themselves if the metaductus is, is corrected appropriately. 
And the other thing is, uh, not every metatarsus adductus deformity with concomitant hallux valgus needs to be corrected. Uh, sometimes, if the metatarsus adductus angle is low and the intermetatarsal angle is high and the hallux valgus angle is high, uh, in some situations, you can reduce the first-rate pathology in isolation because there's just physically enough room to put that metatarsal back into position. So um, that's something else also that you have to kind of have a keen eye and just uh, a clear understanding of when to pull the trigger on something like a 3-2-1 and when just to kind of go after the low-hanging fruit and, and do the more simplistic procedure in isolation uh, in order to, to optimize the patient result and uh, satisfaction and outcome. I think for me, it would be get out of your comfort zone a little bit. We all did training at a place where there was a go-to procedure with physicians who were very good at a surgical procedure, and we learned it, adapted it, and stand by it. But sometimes we need to realize that there's other things going on besides just the first ray in the foot, right? We're supposed to be experts of the entire foot, not just the first ray. So be an expert at that, learn more about it. Obviously we've talked about, there's not a lot of articles out there. There's some in isolation. Here's a case study where somebody cut the cuboid and did a first TNT arthrodesis for this problem. Here's a study for this, but don't be afraid to look at it and say, how can I take care of this entire problem? Not just one little subset of the problem. And at the end of the day, like Jody mentioned, sometimes there's space there to fix it. Sometimes people don't need this surgical procedure either. They need a good pair of orthotics to help them and they can get through it. So not everything is surgery, but when you do go to it, look outside your comfort zone a little bit and be willing to learn more, ask questions of your peers and take care of that entire 28 bone structure because that's a lot of times what people need. Thank you so much doctors for this great discussion over the past two episodes. And thank you to the listeners for joining us again. Make sure to stay tuned for upcoming podcasts from Podiatry Today. Therese Medical Concepts is focused on improving hallux valgus outcomes via our patented lapoplasty procedure. Backed by 15 peer-reviewed publications, 5-plus years of focused innovation, and over 25,000 procedures performed, the lapoplasty system has become the number one bunion product in the U.S., now, we invite you to experience the next generation of lapoplasty innovations with the lapoplasty mini incision system and the new metatarsus adductus correction system. Visit trees.com to sign up for a cadaveric workshop. Don't forget, you can find Podiatry Today podcasts on the Podiatry Today website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and your favorite podcast platform.